from the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski, and we appreciate you being a part of the show this month. If ever you'd like to add a question to the program, email that to ask at WBAA.org, or you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. And speaking of asking questions, I know you're going to sit down later this week with Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep, who's coming back to his home state of Indiana, and normally he's the one who asks the questions, but I'm curious, what do you want to ask him when you get the chance? Well, that's interesting. I'm, a, I'm primarily interested just in seeing him. I've known him over the course of time. His dad actually taught and I believe was the athletic director at the high school I attended. Oh, really? And uh, then I got to know Steve later um, in life. Uh, you know, We're proud of him. He's a Hoosier who's gone and done great things and um, he's an important figure in American journalism. Uh, no, I just want to catch up and uh, – it's always interesting to talk to people in your profession, Stan, about the changes these days, you know, um, people getting their information in different ways, social media and the like, all the problems around quality control and how can you trust the veracity of things. And Steve's still working for a uh, a, a news source that we, we all do trust, at least as to accuracy. And uh, so uh, I'll, I'll probably want to ask him about about the professional world he lives in and how he's seeing and dealing with the changes. On to other things. Uh, Purdue was uh, recently informed it did not win the contract to help manage the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And I wondered, as you got into this, was this something that you saw as a way to primarily boost Purdue's name in the defense space, which you've been trying to do over the last couple of years, or, or did was it a reasonable expectation that you were actually going to to win the thing? The answer to the second question is yes. Okay, we had a there was a debriefing. Each uh, bidder is invited to come to one, and they um, members of the team went last week, and it was made very uh, clear the term that uh, at least came back to me was razor thin margin. Um, we also could tell that those those aspects of the proposal for which Purdue was principally responsible, some having to do with leadership and organization and culture change, which the RFP said was going to be a primary determinant, not clear that it was in the final decision. But anyway, those things for which the government would have been looking to Purdue as opposed to our operating partner, um, we think we got great grades. On the, the first part of your question, uh, it, yes, the, the, to to be more uh, active and visible in the defense space, but I would broaden it and say that it was a, an attempt to um, build Purdue's overall intellectual reputation. Uh, the uh, Not just in defense. Not just in defense. As a matter of fact, Los Alamos um, has a fairly large budget for other kinds of science, and that would have been part of our responsibility. So... Not just making weapons, which is what a lot of people know them for. That's correct. And so um, uh, we thought it was well worth the attempt, again, to to try to uh, compete and and perhaps operate on that intellectual plane and that scientific uh, plane. And... um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm very glad we tried. It's interesting that you talked about the importance of culture change in that RFP because your partner Bechtel uh, was 
part of the original um, operating partner, and they've received some criticism actually for failing to change the culture. So why did why did you choose to partner with them when you knew that culture change was something that you were being asked to do? Oh, to be honest, uh, they invited us. You go to the prom with who asks you. Um, and uh, we didn't go shopping around for all alternative uh, partners. We've had a great relationship with that company. Um, Steve Bechtel, still uh, um, alive in his 90s, the, the patriarch of that great family, is a Purdue grad. And uh, their most recent CEO, Bill Dudley, is a Purdue grad and recent uh, um, honorary doctorate recipient here. So lots and lots of Boilermakers work for the firm. We've had good ties. They recruit heavily on our campus. So it was a natural uh, partnership. What did you learn during the process? Because this has been for a long time a facility that's had um, you know, a lot of secrecy around it, and the operation of it is you know, seen by some as kind of under the radar and, and, and perhaps necessarily so. What did you learn about operating with a company like Bechtel that has deep government ties and trying to get into the, the part of the defense space that is not highly publicized? Obviously, we didn't learn nearly what we hoped to, but I think just the application process uh, uh, taught us a lot. Um, our chief scientist here at Purdue um, Tomas Diaz de la Rubia, uh, before he came to Purdue, had a long history in this very area. He had worked at Lawrence Livermore National Labs for a long time, knows all kinds of people. So he was sort of our uh, our lead in, in trying to put our team together, our proposal together. And uh, obviously, we all learned a lot uh, uh, through him from both his past background and from this process. I want to talk more about the the Ideas Festival in just a moment, but it occurred to me that as you're t- coming up with these um, these high thought areas that you want to attack in, in Purdue's 150th year, you know, denuclearization of the world is one of those things that's been talked about for a long time now. You were working to try to be a partner with Los Alamos, which has created some of the most powerful weapons known to man, do those do, does this make you think about that larger question that's that's not a part of the ideas festival but is an important national and international question of what should we be doing with nuclear energy should it be weaponized should we be talking about bringing smart people together to talk about denuclearization has any of that percolated as you've been going through this I don't think you can avoid thinking about these questions, whether uh, during a process like the one we're, that we just finished or just uh, in the normal course of being a citizen. Um, there are far too many ways now in which mankind, humankind, could um, destroy itself. Nuclear weapons not the only one. And um, um, so uh, our, our Dawn or Doom conference – which in some ways has been very successful and grown every year and in some ways was a precursor to the Broader Ideas Festival. It'll be one of the anchor events. Gets into this. Um, you know, the, the risks not just from um, uh, nuclear weapons perhaps falling into the wrong hands or being used uh, uh, by a mistake or, or uh, rash action, but uh, biological weapons, the risks that uh, – even with innocent intent, artificial intelligence could run away from us and threaten the entire 
human race. All these things are questions that uh, if a if a citizen isn't thinking about them uh, fairly often, uh, they they ought to start. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Email your questions to ask at wbaa.org. Tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. We mentioned the Ideas Festival, and the chairs of that event have chosen four broad topics around which they plan to focus. You mentioned AI, uh, space, health and quality of life, sustainability are the others. Are You could have chosen from a myriad of things. Are you happy with those four as the ones this time around? I'm very happy with them. I think our faculty in, the, uh, in a good open process uh, uh, looked at all, um, uh, I think, credible options and came to these. The um, tests I hoped and that I hope the, the year will measure up to are that we'll be talking about Problems of genuinely huge importance and of um, of long term uh, future importance. Uh, oh, and and topics that uh, are close to the uh, uh, core uh, competencies, you could say, of, of Purdue. And I think these uh, four that uh, this uh, that our chairs um, uh, uh, have uh, Chris Laddish. From the College of Human Health and Human Sciences, and Mark Lundstrom, one of our premier scientists, uh, computer experts, uh, have put together is just right. You mentioned the core competencies of the university, and you've said on this program and elsewhere that you want people coming from far and wide to to attend this and be a part of these discussions. And yet, there's a balance with the things that Purdue is already good at. How do you get people to come and participate without thinking this is just a, hey, isn't Purdue great kind of exercise? I think you, you have to attract them by um, first uh, engaging them in big topics that they're very interested in. And I, as we just said, I think that the, the framework that our faculty group has put together um, meets that test. And I think, uh, secondly, you hope to uh, – um, uh, recruit them by suggesting they're going to encounter other interesting people, whether they're from Purdue or other guests. And I hope it'll take on that character, too. I, I think maybe some guests will come because they have a good vested interest. Not not only are they interested in the topics, but that maybe they're from a company that wants to recruit from here um, or uh, uh, has a research collaboration or an idea for one. So probably a combination of all that. Uh, but um, – uh, we'll, in fact, I have a, a meeting on the uh, later on the day we're taping this program uh, to visit with the with the uh, organizing committee and see what I can do to help in the next uh, week or two. On to other things, uh, you wrote a letter not long ago that supports a bill that would repeal the public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, you've, we've talked about it on this program. You said you don't think it's a really good idea. Your letter actually says that you take issue with what you see as kind of a too broad definition of public service and the jobs therein. So let me ask, why not just redefine what public service means rather than repeal the whole thing? That that could work, you know. My my point is, this is going to reward a lot of wealthy people, doctors and lawyers, and I don't think that's. Um, uh, uh, first of all, changing the rules after um, they've started is is uh, uh, was questionable in the first place. But uh, uh, if you're going to provide relief, I wouldn't start with the what in this case will wind up being the wealthier end of 
of the socioeconomic spectrum. No, I'd be fine. My attitude toward the whole bill was it had lots of imperfections, had some things in it I thought were good ideas. It was going it, it would simplify the financial aid process, uh, reduce multiple loan programs into one. A lot of people on both sides of the aisle called for that. It would it would uh, make uh, schools more accountable. Um, uh, uh, so-called skin in the game. If if their graduates are defaulting on loans, maybe the schools ought to take at least a part of the burden of that. I think that's a very good idea, and Purdue'd be willing. Uh, so it had good elements. You know, my attitude was it's got a lot of flaws, um, but uh, if they could move it on to the Senate, try to fix the the uh, imperfections there, we'd be better off with a bill than no change at all. And right now, it looks like no change is what's going to happen. Right. And um, I, I was struck by, you know, you've used your your speeches to graduates each year to talk about doing good in the world and, and trying to benefit others. And that's been a really constant theme all throughout. I wonder if you think there are people who looked at going into the public versus the private sector, maybe even people who were Purdue graduates, who saw this program and thought, oh, this is a good way to do good, but also you know, be rewarded if I do good for long enough. I didn't think it had a broad enough definition of good. When our Purdue graduates go out into the productive sector and create new goods, services, companies, um, and therefore new jobs for others, new wealth for others, that's a pretty good definition of the public interest to me. And so I, I never have thought it was um, optimal to say to them, you're, on the, you're still on the hook, but we're going to let these other folks off who are going into the um, – uh, not the tax-producing sector of society, but the tax-consuming sector – Speaking of doing good, or, or perhaps doing well in this case, uh, the athletic teams at the university had a pretty good year, uh, and, and there are some people may know if they follow college athletics that there are trackers of you know which university did the best in terms of overall finish, uh, and, and Purdue finished uh, at least within the Big Ten fairly well. Yeah, thanks for noticing. It's really true. Um, uh, at the end of every year... Uh, they tally up in our department, athletic department our, our, our average finish across the 20 sports we compete in. And in most recent years, out of 14 schools, we've been as low as 11th or 9th or something. We were 4th this year. Trailed only uh, Ohio State, Michigan, and I'm going to say Minnesota. But it's the best overall finish for Purdue athletics in well over a decade. I'm not sure, maybe as long as we've been tracking this. Um, we finished strong. Our baseball team uh, closed with a rush and made it to the uh, uh, national uh, championship tournament. Our track team uh, came within a whisker of winning a national championship, a literal whisker, 0.1, uh, 0.01, I'm sorry, of a second of winning a national relay and was and finished eighth uh, uh, in the nation, our, our women's track team. And so a lot to be proud of. And it should never we should never lose sight of the fact that um, Purdue Athletics does it right. Uh, they, um, these are real students taking real courses. And, uh, and um, uh, I'm astonished at the discipline that, that it takes to be a Division I athlete and a real student. Um, uh, and um, so we're just very deeply proud of all of them. And by the way, when you wanna, if you want to look forward for whatever these rankings uh, are worth – our football recruiting has been rated now uh, repeatedly in the top 25 in the country and climbing. And uh, so uh, 
and we've got uh, uh, we hope a lot more success to look forward to. I saw an interesting thing as the World Cup was getting started that related every World Cup team to a college football team, and they said that South Korea's men's World Cup team was like Purdue. They said it's a, a relatively solid team that, team that has some tricks up its sleeve <laughs> and might be on the rise, and so they sort of, they sort of equated them that way. Well, we all know, uh, we, we saw it even in his, in his first year that uh, uh, our, our coach Brahm has uh, lots of tricks, uh, and uh, everyone agrees one of the most inventive uh, creative uh, coaches out there, so we we should have some um, some fun seasons ahead. You got a, a mention recently in a Washington Post editorial where former House Speaker John Boehner was quoted as saying, "There is no Republican Party. There's a Trump Party. The Republican Party is kind of taking a nap somewhere." End quote. That's his direct quote. Uh, you are referenced as somebody who's kind of a a longtime party stalwart there. Do you agree with Speaker Boehner's characterization of of you and of the party itself as as having been transmogrified in some way? Well, of course, I haven't been an active anything for over five years now. So um, uh, I, in June of twelve, as we've um, discussed well, here from time to time, I I stepped aside from um, any any partisan politics. So I'm I'm in a little different category, I suppose, than other people. But still, plenty of mentioned. friends and contacts. And well, whatnot. all right. No, I think he was uh, making a, a accurate and um, point that. The, the the party, by the way, it's true. Both parties uh, is uh, divided right now, and that there uh, are um, very different viewpoints, and um, each party could look very different in a over the next few years than it has historically. We'll just have to see. But no, I don't. I don't quarrel with his observation that uh, the the party, at least under its current uh, leadership. Um, is uh, has positions that are very different than just a few years ago. Do you think that people like you and Speaker Boehner and you know probably soon to be Paul Ryan, who's retiring from the House, and others who were considered moderate Republicans, um, kind of you know what now I guess we would almost call old guard Republicans, uh, will have a role going forward in trying to figure out how to fix some of the schisms in the party? I won't have any role as long as I'm in this job because that's the, the choice I made. The only choice I think was uh, was responsible. Um, you know, the the other folks you mentioned uh, um, still speak for a, a large number of people, I believe, uh, who uh, favor what has historically been a central to the Republican Party, a primacy on individual freedom, um, uh, uh, Free markets, free people, uh, skepticism about government getting too big, too bossy, too intrusive. I think there's there's still a lot of Americans uh, who uh, for whom those are major concerns. But do they need? But do those Americans need to have that reinforced by people who were, uh, you know, who were representative of that when they when they led stuff? If that's still uh, what a, a majority of Americans or a large um, percentage of Americans believe is uh, is important, they'll express themselves and over time and 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 call forth people who 
uh, speak to that or agree with those principles. Speaking of Washington Post editorials, uh, one of your recent ones looks at America's social safety net and one of whose chief problems you characterize this way. You say, quote, our political class was long ago scared witless by the career killing cheap shots aimed at anyone daring to commit candor about the topic, end quote. Um, is this is this a proxy for talking about the larger national debt problems that, that you and I have talked about on this program and you've talked about plenty of other places? The, net, the safety net, meaning the so-called entitlement programs, is the national debt problem. That's where, that's where the money is. That's where the, gr- the growth in spending is going to occur. Uh, that is the problem. And uh, that column was just a slightly different way of expressing a frustration or disappointment that lots of people feel, that this looming threat, uh, this this arithmetically certain threat. There's not a, it's not as though there's some difference of opinion here. No, this, I don't think so. This is mathematics. It's coming. And um, our political class, both sides, have uh, failed to deal with it. In fact, have taken steps to make it worse. And one day, I, I think they'll be remembered uh, un, very unfavorably for that. But the column was just a little bit of a sarcastic way of saying that since reason – Facts, studies, presidential commissions, economic uh, uh, treatises, none of that has has made any difference. That maybe we uh, ought to try a little demagoguery. And, of course, the column goes on to say, no, of course, I'm kidding because we should be trying to build confidence in our institutions and the people who lead them, not not uh, tear them down. But, uh, but uh, since – the uh, uh, what should be the orderly, uh, logical processes of government aren't producing an answer. Somebody suggests a different way. You write the column in kind of an interesting way and in a different way than you've written the other columns, which is you kind of you kind of adopt a, a separate Mitch Daniels persona. And if you were to say, I don't know if it's sarcastic or tongue in cheek or satirical, almost, it's you're definitely poking at people a little bit. And at one point, you say. Um, perhaps at your own peril, uh, you say there's still time to do some simple common sense things to save the safety net. Just for one example, why do we send retirement checks to Warren Buffett? When the system is running out of money, shouldn't we let the millionaires and billionaires provide for themselves and conserve the money for those who really need it, which I think a lot of people would agree with. So allow me to ask you, you are a millionaire who is of Social Security age if you ever choose to retire. Uh, and we talked about that retirement on our last month's program. Uh, would you send your Social Security check back? Gladly. Of course. By the way, this means testing is what what's that, what that's usually called. Right. Is, is, is to me an obvious step, but it's just a very small first step. It's not the biggest one we could take. You know, you used the right phrase when you said tongue in cheek. That that whole section, I mean, it's it's I think pretty patently meant that way. Sure. I say, you know, since nothing else has worked, maybe we should roll with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And then I go into I think sort of a parody of the way one of our more demagogic politicians of right or left might talk about this, sure. slamming elites and po- politicians and so forth. So it's a little bit of whimsy in there. But uh, I was trying to make the bigger point that uh, a, a, a mature functioning democracy would have come to terms with this 
and would have recognized we, that it's wrong to borrow money and spend it on ourselves, not invest it in the future. It's wrong to leave a huge debt on the younger generations of this country that which they for which they will, you know, condemn their elders one day. Um, that we ought to be able to uh, a real functioning democracy ought to be able to make trade offs and a uh, little less of this and a change in that in order to have a better long term future. But it's not happening, and um, so that's that's why I. Uh, sort of sounded off as a way to maybe get people's attention. As you're going through the Ideas Festival and other thoughts and, and, and counseling graduates of how to go and make the world better, do you think you would tell them we are a mature, functioning democracy at this point? I think about the other countries that have been around longer, and I, I can make an argument that America today is kind of like the petulant teenager of the world where, you know, we've had we've had a lot of... Uh, the generations before us have have helped us to have a really nice base on which to build, and now we're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go to college. I kind of want to go to the rock concert. Uh, you know, is it somewhat that way? Well, history will decide. Um, I uh, um, am, am uh, I maintain because it's the only operating philosophy that makes sense to me uh, an optimistic viewpoint um, that. Um, um, I'm a journalist. I, I'm not allowed to be an optimist. I understand. Um, you know, it, it, it's been said, was it Churchill? You know, Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all other alternatives. <laughs> um, but uh, I, don't, I do not believe the last few years have, have been our finest hour. And, and uh, there are different ways to – different things to fret about there. But – my number one preoccupation, because I just think it is such a menace to our way of life, especially to lower and middle income people, um, if we don't uh, get on top of the debt problem before it is uh, before uh, it brings on a crisis, it'll be a real dereliction of duty by a lot of people. You also wrote an op-ed recently on the occasion of uh, former President uh, George H.W. Bush's 94th birthday. Uh, you served with him, of course, in the Reagan White House. Do you think that, and, and I'll use the term lightly here, the qualities of the current administration have caused us to look back at his and others in a slightly different light? Well, I won't hang it on the current administration. I think there's a, a whole lot about uh, American life and, and the uh, and, and um, what we value uh, and uh, the way we uh, uh, conduct our public discussions um, that uh, uh, I, I regret is uh, the, the differences between that and the kind of life George Bush, uh, uh, President 41 Bush lived his life. And I, um, you'll have noticed in the, I say in the piece, I was asked quite some time ago to write something to be held for the inevitable day when we lose him. A pre-obituary almost. That's right. And, and by the post. And while I was writing, while I was trying to figure out what can I say that won't be better said by so many others, uh, when, I, when I formulated those thoughts, I, I will say that I suggested to them, how about running it sooner? And not so he'd see it so much as that I do think this is timely, that the example he set of excellence, of patriotism, of um, being genuinely elite in the sense of 
uh, holding one's it, itself to the highest uh, quality, building a network of people uh, that uh, with whom you could go make change, um, forgiving, uh, being forgiving of one's adversaries, even the people who treated him the worst, never taking credit himself, um, let alone advantage of his position, all those things, um, I just think are in short supply right now. So I wasn't thinking of any one person or the or one side of our current debates. I think those qualities would be better off if if they made a comeback. I don't know. As I say at the end, I just if he showed up today, maybe he wouldn't get the first base. Well, that's that's appropriate for somebody who played first base yeah, at Yale. I so wondered if you'd catch nicely that. done. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all the time we've got. Thanks as always for your time. We'll do it again next month. Thanks for having me. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Find all of these shows archived at wbaa.org. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960 and featuring the fifth edition of Creating Moments of Joy Along the Alzheimer's Journey, now available. More at thepress.purdue.edu.